So I know that people know people in their companies who have that spirit and it's just to harness it. It's to understand their emotional intelligence, to give them that power that will make them excel and, and create this entrepreneurial spirit within their companies that are going to help them keep moving them forward because that is our natural nature. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 349. Today is Sunday the 17th of November, 2019. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. And I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day for the listen. I also want to give a shout out and thanks for putting up a review of the show. One to RG Ferrari and on the UK store, Alan Reneker. So this week's interview is with Nicole Yershin. Nicole was identified by The Drum as one of the 25 women who have shaped the British digital industry over the last 25 years. Nicole is founder of the NY Collective, author of the book Rough Diamond, Speaker, and in her 16 years at Ogilvy, founded the Ogilvy Lab. In this conversation with Nicole, we discuss how to be an entrepreneur, bringing that entrepreneurial spirit into big business, the challenges for agencies to provide better solutions for their clients, why it's about better, not best practices, and building a great network, and much more. Well, Nicole, it's a wonderful pleasure to have you on my show. It's been many years we've known each other, and I've wondered just the other day, how on earth is it that I didn't get you on the show? So for those of you who don't know you, you are the author of Rough Diamond. You are a, an entrepreneur. You've had a long and illustrious career. You are a judge of many of the most interesting competitions, including at South by Southwest. And um, you also are a um, radical shitster, I'd like to call you. <laughs> That's a technical term. <laughs> no, Nicole, in your own words, how would you describe yourself? Um, I think a, a maverick probably um, does the, the, the trick in terms of title. I will just always question things and, and ask why. And we're normally the ones at school who are told to sit down and shut up and we don't want to hear from you in eight hours. Um, and then told that we're disruptive and naughty and we're not. We just can't go through that um, way of being and it's the same then when you put people like us within very large organizations we can't help but question why people are doing certain things why are you having a meeting that's five hours with uh, with 20 people just because yeah so you'll question it and then if the answer isn't doesn't sound right to you or feel right then you'll try another way even if you've been told not to yeah as you said in your book you say at school, we're taught just to repeat what we know mm. and, and provide answers. We are not taught how to ask questions. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and I, I found when I was at, at Ogilvy for, from 2000 to 2016, 17, I found that the people that I was working in in the early days when I was setting up the, um, the Digital Innovation Lab, I found that the people that Ogilvy were hiring all the time were majority white middle class Oxford educated and they wouldn't ask why. They, there would be one answer and it would be at the end of the book 
um, and they wouldn't question anything. And that's why I set up my Rough Diamond program, which is the title of the book, which was to get in some kids age 14 who are about to be expelled, who just saw other issues and would question them. You know, it's funny. I was reading some blog posts the other day and we talked about how we've gone from the industrial to the internet now to the knowledge industry or the knowledge uh, existence era but yet knowledge is so apparently everywhere mm. the you know like uh, the, the the issue for data scientists for example is what questions should have asking the data because there is a lot of data out there yeah. Well, I think when uh, when there's so much choice, I always find this, you know, if I was doing um, a wedding list or something like that, maybe I'm the anomaly, but I just remember uh, when we would go in and, and we did the wedding list and it was pick 12 knife and forks and crockery and cutlery and we got then to the, um, the kitchenware stuff and there were 50 toasters and 100 kettles and I just said to my ex-husband... <laughs> I'm out of here. I can't cope with this amount of stuff. And I think that's what happens. In, unless you have a clear focus or uh, of why you're um, questioning uh, what you're reading, then it's just very, it almost builds paralysis. Yes. Today we're very clearly in this stage of oversaturation of information yeah. and data at every point. And so we're being overwhelmed by yeah. the number of stuff. And that's why also uh, when I was at Ogilvy, and this is what I still do, actually, I used I developed the semesters of learning. So in the very early days, I could see all these things happening, like gaming and mobile and social and uh, AR and VR and big data and behavior change. And I'm thinking, how am, how am I going to get a handle on all of these different things? So I created a six-month semester on just one topic. So I do six months on streaming. Um, and then I'd see 10 to 15 different streaming companies every single week. And then I'd find a brand that had a problem, so it happened to be Ford at the time, and I um, and the, the solution would be streaming, uh, mm. a streaming company, so I would match them. And rather than do a TV ad, we would do a live stream of the chairman from Ford speaking that went to 22,000 desktops in 19 countries in five languages. Uh, but the TV department said to me, oh, no, we don't do that. We only do TV. And I then had to say, not anymore. So once it was done and it was finished, that was, there was a very clearly defined focus to my learning. And I continue to do that for a lot of my clients. So if I'm working with, um, you know, oral health or pharmaceuticals or... Um, just many of those clients, I will do like a mini semester to find out as much as I can. And the information I'm searching will have a raison d'etre, if you like. Well, it, whether you take a topic like streaming or mixed reality, VIAR, inevitably they involve other technologies. So even by doing six months on streaming, you'll have to yeah. learn how to do video editing. You're going to have to learn what is speed of download. Well, what I did once I got all those, you know, this was early days, this was 2000 to um, say 2010, I started to then look at um, verticals and I would look at future of uh, travel and tourism and mobility or future retail or and I would start to uh, get those more in the bag, uh, understanding what else it can go into those topics. Yeah, because it is true today that there are so many different technologies yeah that it's no longer about knowing the technologies. You need to be more specialized and knowing how to drill down and what's specific with the regulatory environment of certain things in certain industries. 
Well, that's the uh, the beauty of my strength. And it's uh, obviously understanding your strengths and weaknesses. And my strength is being a connector. So whoever I meet, I'll have in my head, oh my God, I know someone else that they should meet. And then you connect the two. It's a little bit like being a conductor of an orchestra. You know, you want to do a project and you'll bring in some trombones um, and then exactly how they play or violins or... Um, and that's, you know enough to be dangerous, I guess. But you know the right people to drill down who know way more than you. You, do. you write in your book that um, there's no ROI for connecting people. Yeah. Isn't that a shame? It is. The finance directors yeah. just um, don't ha- because it's not something that is produced. Uh, I mean, I did create six um, ways to to understand the power of connectivity. Um, I used to call them my six R's. And so a little bit of revenue, reputation. So it definitely, the stuff that we were doing went into how people would speak about us and awards, most importantly, because that's what they cared about. Um, so revenue, reputation, retention of existing staff, because we were doing interesting things, recruitment of new diverse talent through the Rough Diamond program, relationships, which is the connectivity to the, uh, you know, especially with the semesters on meeting all those people and having them in a in a, a black book and responsibility giving back. So as long as uh, we met those targets, I always felt that we were that I would measure myself because the it was an R and D facility. It wasn't a P and L profit and loss. Mm. It was it was run specifically for research and development, and it was hard for those finance directors or managers of companies large companies to understand anything other than one figure on an excel spreadsheet well it does speak to the messiness of business so um you know you're you're at this position where you you're working with companies and you worked very long time with agencies and for having also worked in a large let's say uh, consumer brand company l'oreal working with agencies i i kind of got the feeling that they were part of the problem that they were trying to like you say sell me television ads because that's what they knew and that's what their cheese was Mm. and and then all of a sudden their cheese got moved and and I would add the other comment that you made which is that they wanted to have awards but the problem is many of these awards have nothing to do with actually moving the business they're Mm. just a little bit of self-gratification. I made a beautiful ad mm. that look at that beautiful car going down that road. Doesn't move a single car sale, but boy, is it beautiful. Yeah. I think that's also how they're measured for success with uh, with their clients. Um, so the gun report or various different ways in which they measure awards. And if a if a agency has those awards, then, then that's a tick in, in the box. But I think... I mean, when I, if we say look at Cam, for instance, I was always very entrepreneurial with how I looked at going to these things. And um, our jobs, majority of the time, were always up for awards. But I wouldn't spend six grand a night on accommodation. I would do it in a non, because it came out of my little R&D pot that I earned, you know, being an entrepreneur. And I would, um, this is a sneaky little trick. So I um, have an amazing place in, in not my place, in, um, in Cannes that I work from Airbnb. And every year I hire it. And it's, I think, about 1,500 euros for the week from the Monday to Friday. Very reasonable. But it has um, two bedrooms, four beds in each room, and two really big sofas. So I would rent out a bed for 250 euros for the week. 
So anyone could come and stay. It was kind of like a... Um, for anyone that didn't have that kind of money, they would rent for the week for £250, Euros. Then I'd get an EasyJet flight, which is next to nothing. And I would always make sure... I wouldn't get a... Um, a an entrance to uh, the Palais for the festival because it was so expensive. But companies like Media Conferences would have the best speakers come from the Palais and speak at their events. Mm-hmm. Um, so MediaCom have a, a, a penthouse at, at one of the large hotels. So I would make sure that I got friendly to go to those events. So I would see those speakers in a very intimate boutique setting. Mm-hmm. And I'd go there when it was mealtime. <laughs> so, so actually I could end up spending 500 euros for the week in Cannes because I saw it as my money. Now you have a lot of the agencies don't have that entrepreneurial attitude and they're spending the money as if it's somebody else's and that's also not the right attitude to have. That is so true. So you basically hacked can. Yeah, that's what I do with everything. I hack everything because there must be another way. L- love that. So let's talking about agencies and the problem that they face, obviously in this difficult environment there at the front line, if you, as you know, um, had Mark Reed, the CEO of WPP, or let's say Arthur Sadoun in front of you, the CEO of a publicist group worldwide, what would you tell them in order to fix the agency situation, business model and such? Well, I did. I, I disrupted the business model and I got told off very badly. Um, so it's when you get to that leadership position you need to be able to have someone like me, that kind of entrepreneur or maverick behavior, and trust that they're doing it for the power of good and allow them to uh, make changes and prove by doing and then report back so that they can then um, see. You know, When I disrupted the, the business model with doing a Pizza Hut TV ad, what I was doing was I took on a brief directly from the CMO from Pizza Hut and I said to, she wanted a TV ad in, in four weeks, a 20-second ad. And I said to her, I'm going to take that brief, but it's going to be done in my style, in a new way. And so you've got to be take responsibility for that if you want it and if you trust me. So she said yes. So we did... Um, we never had a face-to-face meeting, none of us. They were either using Slack or WhatsApp. Um, we, there were only five people on the job, three from Ogilvy and two on her side. She had to give approvals pretty quickly for um, what was being done. We didn't do a 20-second ad. We, I went back to her and said, can you audit your own company and find out what other content you would like and we can do it at the same time so we ended up with like 15 different pieces of content um, I said at the shoot is not going to be a cast of thousands it's going to be you guys because it wasn't um, it was food porn for want of another word I think it was a, a, a cheeseburger pizza which was their innovation um, but it didn't it didn't need a cast of thousands and it was done and it was hugely successful they came back from the edit and everyone loved it and it didn't need to be rebriefed another team to get involved a million people cast of thousands going to meeting after meeting and spending huge amounts of money and it was a new way of doing things agile or whatever you want to call it but everyone had buy-in everyone knew the parameters but I got really, really um, told off because that was going against their business model. That's how they make money. They make money by having all those bodies, by having a rebrief, by getting more money out of the client. Now, I know that secret, 
because I was, I've been in advertising since the mid 80s with Dave Trot, um, at Gold Greenies Trot at Simon's Palmer. I come from an ad background. I just saw change and I was just asking the questions as to why are we still doing it like that? And no one could come up with a better um, reason for me. Well, other than we make money that way. Exactly. So now they need to, them, not just them, many, many other industries. They all need to change how they make money or else they're going to fall off the edge of a cliff. All right. So let's take what you mentioned, which is bring the disruption, accept the disruptor, the, this new idea, Pizza Hut, the 22nd uh, ad turned around into your format. And you extrapolate that into other businesses where we're trying to disrupt. We're trying to learn to be entrepreneurs within a large company. We're trying to manage money as if we were our own. But how do you procreate that kind of feeling and attitude when you were born that way? Mm. Others went to snotty places and yeah. learned lots of information. I, I've been, I'm great at making 30-second spots. My cheese has moved. How do you manage that process of change and get it to ferment and virally change around the entire organization? Well, I managed it pretty well, actually. And I was almost like the Robin Hood, you know, um, that everyone followed. Because when we would do these semesters of learning, I would put a note out to everyone. And I would say, okay, this semester is going to be all about big data. Who's interested? And I would get maybe a dozen people from the group of 2000 uh, who put their hand up and said, that is such a, um, a thing of mine. I'm so excited about it. I would love to be part of this semester. I said, okay, go away, ask your line manager if you can spend some time with the lab. So I never had to worry about paying their wages because they were still within the confines of the group. I worked across the group structure. So I was able to, to pick upon any of the P&Ls that I was working right. with. And um, so... Number one, there was a want and a love of the semester that we were going to do. And then I would not micromanage them. I would say, okay, you go to Amsterdam. There's an event called IBC. I want you to check out everything and come back and report back and find anything that is relevant to this semester that we're doing. And labs would pay for them uh, and it wouldn't be extravagant, but they would be doing something they loved, on top of their day job and then the deal was that they passed all their learnings to their teams and then that would then go on to their clients it's funny you know imagine coming back you, you're reporting from this conference in amsterdam and and funnily enough what it makes me feel is that so much of what people are doing in business isn't actually meaningful to them mm. but if you can create a sense of importance, a sense of meaningfulness anyway for the individuals, then they're prepared to bring their discretionary energy to the game. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. And the fact that you don't micromanage them, that you allow them to think for themselves. So I had one poor girl, she, I mean, she was amazing, what a girl, but she was very timid, very frightened. And she was in my office one day and I said, you know, are you okay? And she said, well, I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm, doing the comms as part of the semester for big data and I'm looking after the lanyards and she said but I don't know what to put on them and I said well what do you want to put on them and it was almost kind of again this fear of saying the wrong thing yeah so I said what do you think should go on them you're going to an event uh so put yourself in someone else's shoes what do you think should be on it and she said I said perfect 
do it. She said, but what should it look like? I said, what do you think it should look like? Hmm. Um, I said, this is, we're not saving lives or anything. What do you think, as a creative yourself, I mean, she was in account handling, but all of them are creative. And she got through what she thought it could look like and what the material then should be. And she walked away 10 foot taller because I'd asked her. Her opinion. Her opinion. And then not shouted her down if it was wrong. There's no right or wrong. It's a lanyard Mm -hmm. to put round your neck. So it changed how she went about doing business by just not um, micromanaging her. Yeah, this notion of micromanagement and allowing the freedom because um, they everybody brings a sense of responsibility they know about it but if you start putting down rules and regulations mm. they they only look at the rules and regulations and then all of a sudden they feel they're boxed in mm. and the other point that i think is interesting is being in touch with yourself because so much of the time we think we're doing things for others well, it's good to do things for your clients, mm. right? But if you know that your brand feels this way, is this way, the decoration of your lanyard becomes an obviousness. Mm. And if that's well spread throughout the organization, then the representation of the brand, its feeling becomes obvious at every cornerstone. Mm. It's about taking ownership mm. and responsibility. And that's what I gave back to her. Mm-hmm. And I find even when I'm working now with um, you know, a very large company that I was working with first recently, and this was a really big insight for me, actually. Um, it was they had a KPI set to them with the course they were doing at London Business School, which was change. And then when I sat down with them, uh, they said, you know, well, what are you going to do to help us? I've been trying to do, uh, you know, he's been in a narrative the last four years of, of coming up with different ideas. They take them to their line managers and nothing ever happens. And the ideas are in the bottom drawer and no one knows how to execute them. And they're not given uh, the OK. So nothing ever happens. And that's four years worth of this narrative. So he says to me, you know, I have a KPI now of change attached to me. And I've been trying to do that for four years. And what are you going to do to help me? So I said, I can say I can sort it for you right now. So I said, okay, there were eight of them that worked in different parts of the organizations, different parts of the world. And I said, um, do you all have access to budget? And they all said, yes. So I said, can you take a little bit of each of your budgets and make one big pot? They said, yes. I said, so now you're all in it together. You're knocking down silos. You all have, uh, you're all responsible for this one pot of money. You all have skin in the game. You all have skin in the game. Now come up with um, some issues that you all have together, not just your issue over there and yours over there. What issues do you all commonly have? And then we're going to spend an hour thinking about what solutions we can come up with to fix those issues. So they probably came up with about six or seven uh, solutions, and they were all really pleased with themselves. So then I said to them, so what are you asking permission for then? You've got your pot of money. You know what the problems are for all of you. You know you've come up with your different solutions. What's, you know, off you go. And then I had two things face me. One, as though I'd handed them the crown jewels because it was so easy for me to see a way forward. But two, utter fear. And then I got a barrage of yes, but mm. yes, but I need to get an approval. Yes, but the, I said, but we've been through all of that. This is your pot of money. So then what became very, very clear and what I've seen in many companies that I've been working with is an absolute um, enormous sense of fear of doing anything. So they get to that paralysis, but they also don't know how to move forward. 
uh, even to just do it, even though they not they don't need to ask permission. Mm. It it was fascinating. Yeah. The the mind works in mysterious ways in in uh, companies. Maybe the reference to the something on your site. The black box of the mind. You write in your site, um, which I really enjoyed reading, by the way, it says, always bringing better practices through the black book and never the smoke and mirrors of the black box. Mm. So what's in the black book and better, not best practices? The black book is relationships and they're the relationships and you can't just magic them up. You have to put some bloody hard work into it you have to see everyone you have to see the whites of their eyes you have to sit down and have a cup of tea or coffee with them you need to know them you need to feel their energy and then that's the beauty of connectivity because to get something done you need to know the right person who can fix a particular problem so the black book is just full of my whole life's worth of relationships that's brilliant and what about you write better practices. Most companies always talk about best practices. Yeah. Tell us how you got to that conclusion that it should be about better practices. I think because everything's evolving all the time. Even if you've done something once, by tomorrow it's out of date. Mm. So it can't ever be the best because it's moved on or you've seen someone else or there's someone in China who's doing something. You think, oh, my God, that, that moves us on. Uh, you know years ahead so I think there's just there's not one right answer it's just continuously moving and that's what most people find difficult because especially within the industry that I know the advertising marketing industry there's always been um, a tv ad at the end of it and then you move on to the next well that's not the case anymore because it is moving at such a pace it could be anything you've got i don't know 150 omni channels that you need to be working with all the time and they all need a different kind i mean i know since i've been on my own with um with my company uh, the ny collective i do an hour a day on my own brand so I do half an hour in the morning, half an hour in the evening, seven days a week. And what I put on Facebook is not what I put on LinkedIn, is not what I put on Instagram, is not what I put on Twitter. And that's just me uh, on my own. You can imagine how when you're a larger company and these things are evolving all the time, there's different news happening all the time. To stay on top of it is is a full-time job, but most people have their day jobs and this isn't on top of their mm. day job. Well, somehow it needs to be integrated into yeah. what you're doing. Um, you talked about the NY Collective. Tell us how it works. And why NY? Sounds like New York. Nicole Yershin. There you go. <laughs> um, lots of people keep saying to me, you know, you have you moved to New York? I'm like, no, they're my initials. Well, especially since it's <laughs> NYC. You know. Yeah, Nicole Yershin Collective. I got it. <laughs> so tell us about what is the collective and, and how does it work? The collective is um, is a group of people uh, that we work with each other, depending on what the job is. So it's a it's a typical production company scenario of staffing up, staffing down, but it's not an agency scenario where you employ everyone. It's a leverage business model. It's um, it it doesn't have a roof over your head. I mean, I use all of the Soho House. Um, global memberships mm -hmm. and they're my offices because I don't you know with the gig economy now and with technology as it is you don't need an office you don't need to permanently hire people to do one specific job so you have access to everyone out there within my black book depending on what the problem is and I think that's really key because otherwise 
I think a lot of companies solve the wrong problem really well because that's their cheese. Yeah. Uh, I don't because I don't need to because mm. I'm not made like that. Mm. I am. I, I cut through the bullshit. Well, you also don't have a salary count with people in fixed positions. Yeah. You're able to pull on who you need according to the client yeah. in front of you. I mean, that's a big pressure, isn't it, for any company to have all those salaries to pay and to have uh, the big building rents to pay. It, it's, I mean, it's showing you now with WeWorks and everything else that's popping up is that you just don't need to work like that anymore. Of course, with WeWork dropping down. But <laughs> um, on your site and part of what you offer is an entrepreneurship uh, online learning platform, which is fascinating. You have over 5,000 people who have paid up to come and participate on this. That's great. So tell us a little bit about it and who it's targeted to. Intrapreneur, I don't know whether listeners will understand the word, but it's it's um, it's being an, an entrepreneurial spirit within a very large organization. So it's you, you don't have your own company, but you are able to make decisions and behave in a, in a kind of entrepreneurial way within a company. And that's really kind of uh, management if they give you that opportunity. And I had it for 17 years. So it was, you know, and, and didn't get fired until then. <laughs> So I was very, very lucky that they. I had a visionary um, CEO at the time who gave me a brief of just bring us into the 21st century. I don't know what you need to do. I have no idea, but I trust you. So having that, not many people can deal with something so wide, mm-hmm. but a, an, a, an entrepreneurial spirit will just lap that kind of thing up. So I know that people know people in their companies who have that spirit and it's just to harness it. It's to understand their emotional intelligence, to give them that power that will make them excel and and create this entrepreneurial spirit within their companies that are going to help them keep moving them forward because that is our natural nature. Uh, so the what the course does is it goes into details as to how you can be more entrepreneurial I guess a little bit like um, you know Sam Conniff's book Be More Pirate very similar attributes it's um, of an entrepreneur where you are knocking down walls you're questioning the status quo uh, you're understanding that it's not coming from a bad place that you're doing it for the right reason you're testing and learning you're not you know hell-bent on this is there's only one way Um, there might be many different ways you listen You've got two ears and one mouth, so you listen a lot to someone who might know more than you. Uh, there's no ego involved. It's it's um, it works in a very kind of flat structure, and it just the the course just gives people who are in companies who think they're going mad, or there's no one else like them, a feeling of belonging of oh my god she's like me, and and they they have almost like a label or a home. <laughs> So I haven't had the um, honor of taking any of your courses, but it strikes me that the so the people who are going to be open to this type of mm. I desire, who are going mad, recognizing their situation, mm. and yet the issue is when they do the learning, they go back and they've got a boss who hasn't taken the program, yeah. isn't on the bus. Mm. How do you get the boss on the bus? There's lots of different ways. You go over, under, round, through. Um, I had, and I give examples of when I had those situations regularly. You know, when I first started the Rough Diamond program, my CEO told me not to. 
I said, but I, I, this is absolutely necessary to change when the stuff we're doing with the innovation lab. We also need the people to run it and to, and to be curious. He said, nope, it's not your um, problem. This is HR. And I kind of had a chat with HR and nothing was really happening there. So I just thought, fuck it, I'll just do it myself. So I, and I've always um, advocated that you have to prove by doing. You can't just explain or in a PowerPoint explain. Sometimes you just have to go under the radar, do it, and then showcase all of your results. So two years after I'd set up Rough Diamond, it was running unbelievably. The CEO came down to my office and said, I've just had lunch with uh, Sir Robin Baker. I said, oh, the Dean of Ravensbourne. He said, yes. And I said, oh, we've been doing this much stuff. And he said, that was a really good idea of mine. <laughs> <laughs> Let them own it. You know, this, this is, that's a, a great, great example. And um, appreciate the idea of, of going under the radar. As you write in your book, you talk about just do it and ask for permission later. Yeah. And, and so just doing it is the key part where you get the learning and, and the PowerPoint preparation presentation which is preparation for permission mm. is a way to be shot down yeah. well that's not how we do things around here I don't want to give you permission I wanted to ask you just a couple of questions for the time that's left us here first is how on earth do you stay up to date Nicole because you know doing the six months on one program you did that in the early noughties as you brought us into the 21st yeah. century what about today what, what do you do what's your special uh, inside scoop for us um well, I've, I get given all different types of projects. So at the moment, I'm working with a couple of barristers. Um, and this will be, and I have different kind of payment methods. So this one specifically is, I'm, I'm getting excited. So that will be sweat equity, and I'll have equity in the company. And they will need help because they're setting up um, a barristers chambers. Because the law changed about seven years ago, which meant you didn't have to go, you that you can now go directly to a barrister, direct access, and you don't have to go through solicitors. But the barristers won't um, let people know that because they're frightened of annoying the solicitors, and the solicitors don't want to let people know that because they charge a fortune. So this kind of model is, I find, very exciting, and I'm helping them uh, with with how they move forward, with whether it be with marketing or... Um, um, or I'll, I'll work with pharmaceutical companies who need to understand what is happening on the outside um, and bring it in. So I was working with a company who was looking at oral health. And I said, you know, I just happened to mention, uh, have you uh, maybe had any conversations with uh, with cannabis growers or maybe putting that into toothpaste? or And that, that wasn't even something that came on their radar. So I, I put ideas into their head, kind of a lot of ideation, uh, from doing my semesters, but not necessarily for six months, depending on the project that I'm working on. Or I work within a company, so I'm kind of like um, put in because nothing's happening and I will be able to spot the doers and the ones that aren't doing and I'll be able to get the project running and going uh, without any excuses and to very much kind of implementation. So if I had to resume what you just said, you learn stay up to date by being involved in, in the thick of it yeah but I'll also at least have four things a year that I will pay for for myself where I'll go to places where I'll know no one and nothing so I just came back from something um in Lisbon when everyone web summit no oh. when everyone goes to web summit I don't I go to house of beautiful business 
very few London people there or English people there. One of my dinners, I think I was the only one out of 16. Um, and it is just, I'll go to places that I know not everyone goes to where I'll pick up things and conversations and, and connections with people that are really on the cutting edge of really exciting things. Yeah, because of those large conferences like South By and Web Summit, the majority are there to learn as opposed to give. Yeah. And, and, and you might be one of the bastions. But if you can be involved in a small group where you are one and you're learning from the others, that's yeah. the cool part. Yeah, and I'm part of a couple of communities. One is Hatch which is brilliant. Um, the first time I went there was in Montana and getting to Montana is like planes, trains and automobiles where this place was and there was just for 100 people um, and Summit at Sea I went to for quite a few years and that's in fact where I met my publisher which is where I then, um, you know, did my got the idea to do my book. So unless you go to these places and seek them out... Um, in order to then gather information and relationships to then pass them on to companies that have no idea what is happening out there mm. because they're so busy with their day job. That's for sure. I'm going to end with a quote that you have in your book, which I absolutely adore. It says, be pretty if you can, be witty if you must, but be gracious even if it kills you, from the actress Elsie DeWolf. <laughs> Tell us how you came up with that. Well, that was, that's been a life experience of when... Um, you come across really difficult issues, whether it be divorce or having your innovation lab closed down and, and, and made, being made redundant or... Um, shit happens. Shit happens. And so it's how I, I've now learned to deal with it by being gracious and but always telling the truth. And the truth becomes so powerful. So you can... So my, my other half calls me uh, the baby-faced assassin. So the truth is what is powerful and what is unnerving with a lot of people. And I know whether people have, have constantly been um, understanding of politics and to say the right thing, do the right thing. I will just say my truth, which sometimes makes people feel uncomfortable. But I'll always be gracious. It will never come from a mean um, place. It will just come from moving things along to make things happen. So the baby face is the grace and the yeah. assassin is the truth. Yes, that's exactly right. Beautiful. So Nicole, how can someone get your book, track you down, hire you as a speaker or as a consultant? What would you like? The beautiful thing about my parents is that there's only one, there's only one Nicole Yershon <laughs> in the world. So, you know, it, everything is my name. So you google it or twitter or insta everything is just my name so i'm quite an easy person to find probably like you minta that's right with this weird name that we didn't get but by chance works well on google so yeah they obviously had an understanding of seo all those years ago beautiful all right nicole thanks for coming on the show it's been a pleasure to have you love uh, hanging out with you and look forward to many more years thank you so much thank you thanks for having listened to this recording of the minta dialogue show You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. Trust is a real
My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. 
and then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.